Good morning, church. And we do have a lot of people here, and I'm, I'm really, really glad that you're here. I'm especially glad for those brave souls up front who are in the splash zone. <laughs> Not really. I'm just kidding. Huh? It just depends on how worked up I get, Chris. Um, anyway. So the Apostle John sits on a small island about 10 miles off the coastline of modern-day Turkey. And the main features of the landscape surrounding him are these rock quarries that the Roman Empire maintains there. It's a place where criminals and enemies of the state are sent to perform heavy labor for the rest of their lives. And the features of the spiritual landscape that John sees are even more daunting than that. The persecution of the church that began under Nero in the mid-50 AD has intensified under the next emperor, Vespasian. Peter and Paul, two great luminaries of the way of Jesus Christ, have been extinguished in execution. Timothy has been murdered in Ephesus. Jerusalem itself now lies in ruins, raised from the Temple Mountain downward by Roman legionnaires around AD 70. And then comes the Emperor Domitian in AD 92. And to compensate for his profound insecurity, I'm not the one saying that, we have lots of historians that will attest to that one. He demands that all citizens worship him as Lord and God, actually adds the title Dominitus et Deus on the end of his name. That's why it got shortened to Domitian, by the way. Temples are constructed by slave labor all across the Roman Empire in his honor. And all citizens and subjects, without exception, are required to go in and take a pinch of incense and throw it onto a flame, and kind of one of those eternal burning flames, right? Dancing on the altar and utter the words, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. And to most people, that's probably not that big of a deal. I mean, you're, you're, you're living in a realm of polytheism. There's a thousand little gods, and we're already in this never-ending dance with a hundred of them to try and like, you know, make sure that we don't make any of them angry, but we don't make any of them notice us too much, because either way, that's bad. So what's one more in the mix? What's a pinch of incense and a little Caesar is Lord on top of that? But see, here's the thing. To John and to the followers of the way of Jesus, that's a huge deal. There is only one Lord. Only one who has taken care of death, who has conquered the divide between humankind and God. And that is Jesus. And in John's old age, there is no way he is going to go bow a knee to a mere mortal, okay? He may have been transformed by the Holy Spirit into a loving, faithful pastor of the church, but underneath it all, he is also still a son of thunder, okay? He's not going to do it. And so this is where he finds himself, in exile, on the island of exile, on Patmos. And this is where the church finds him, and this is where the church finds itself, This is the setting, a setting that appears to call into question the fundamental truths of the good news of Jesus. 
Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, but where's the evidence for that? The kingdom of God has come near to you and is fast approaching, but the church is operating behind closed doors. Immorality seems to be gaining a foothold in many of the congregations. If you haven't noticed, that's why we have all those letters that we call the New Testament is because people are losing the plot already and need to be reminded. And their beloved leaders and guides are being executed and exiled. And the question rises up, where is Jesus in all this? Where is he? And it's in this setting that John, with his heart full of Jesus and his heart full of the word that he knows and the word that he has been taught and grown up with in the Hebrew scriptures and the word that Jesus and the Holy Spirit has made alive in his life, sits down and writes the longest letter in the New Testament, which we now know as the Revelation of John. And there's one simple premise to remind the churches that he loves and pastors to hold fast to the word of God and the truth of God, to let the living and active word remind them of this fact. Things are not only as they seem. To the disciple of Jesus, the spirit and the scriptures are working together to pull back the curtain of the way things appear and show the greater reality of the way things are. Something that we cannot accomplish with our unaided senses. And I imagine these congregations together, hearing, huddled behind these closed doors, hanging on every word of John's letter that we know as the Revelation, all these images that the Spirit brings to him, right? Of what's happening, of what's really happening. And God uses the written and spoken words to peel back the layers of their understanding, to shape and transform their heart and their will and their soul and their actions. Sounds pretty great, doesn't it? When was the last time that happened to you? When was the last time that happened to me? When was the last time, as the writer of Hebrews put it in the scripture that we just read, speaking to another group of disciples that was also under a lot of strain and having to search for the way things are rather than the way things seem. The way that the writer put it, when was the last time the word of God was living and active to you? Working in the power of the Holy Spirit like a surgeon's scalpel to peel back the layers of your soul. To precisely get in there and cut away the cancer's of fear or anger or pride or bitterness or despair or whatever it is. And to bring transformation to our souls. When was the last time that happened? Does that sound too grandiose? Does that sound too idealistic in our day and age? Does that sound like we're expecting too much? Does it sound unrealistic that words on a page could do that? Have we lost the plot of what it really means when we talk about the practice of studying the Bible? Because from what I see, 
Those are not unrealistic expectations. From the God who has authored the universe, Jesus who holds every molecule and our very salvation together, says Paul in Colossians, and the spirit that inhabits and motivates and drives every single one of us. Is it really too much to ask for him to take the words off the page and write them on our hearts again? Because when we talk about studying the Bible, we are talking about letting the Father and the Son and the Spirit say things to us that aren't just interesting or informative. They are designed to reshape our understanding. They are designed to ignite transformation inside of us. And we can and we should have a hunger for this kind of encounter with God's Word again. Does that excite you? Because I don't know if it's, maybe there's just a lot of people and it's a lot of hot, but y'all are looking really tired and not very excited about that. And I need you to understand how exciting this is, okay? Maybe I, maybe I do need to get a little worked up. Maybe you guys need to get here. Okay. I, but seriously, think about this. Think about the potential of what God's word can and will do in you. Have we lost that idea? When I look at, the, when I look at this scripture... Especially when I look at the beginning of it, okay? I mean, we, we have heard, you know, the word of God is living and active. It's really sharp, like a double-edged sword. It's able to divide the bone from the marrow and the soul from the spirit and, you know, lay everything open, okay? But look at the first part. Look at the part before that part. Where we're talking about this, there is a rest, a rest that is available for us today. Now, what are we talking about there? Okay, you have, to go, you have to go all the way back to when the Israelites, they have finished coming out of exile in Egypt, being slaves in Egypt, right? You know, the funny thing is, is they weren't even, they weren't even Israelites then. They didn't even know that. They were Egyptians, right? For all intents and purposes, they didn't really know who they were. It takes God a whole generation of wandering around in the wilderness to, to help them remember who they are again and remember that they are God's children again and remember that they can trust him, that there's no God like him and that when they are hungry and when they are thirsty and when they are dying and when they are desperate and when they have all of those things, that they have one who is mighty among them in their midst. And you look at all of Exodus and you look at all of Numbers and I think it's so funny. It's like, wow, man, why would we study that book like Numbers? It's just, it's like, it's like 40 chapters of people like remembering God then forgetting him and complaining and then reminding and forgetting and reminding and forgetting. And I'm like, why do we need to read that book? I wonder, I wonder why I need to read that book. But here they stand and they're right on the edge of the promised land and they're getting ready to go in and God says, hey, When you've come in, and when you've taken possession of this land, when you've taken possession of this inheritance that I'm preparing for you, and you're in this place, don't forget who you are. Don't forget how you got here. And Israel promptly goes in, and they what? They forget who they are, and they forget how they got there. 
And if you keep reading through the entire Old Testament, it is the story of Israel forgetting and remembering and God reminding and God reminding again and God reminding them again. And finally, God saying, okay, we're going to go through this again entirely. I am now going, instead of taking you back to Egypt, I'm going to take you to Babylon and I'm going to bring you back again. Why? So you can remember who you are and where you came from and what this is really all about because we forget. There is a rest for God's people. It did not stop with Joshua. What does the writer mean by that? Just, and he says, in the same way that God rested from his work. And sometimes when we hear this word rest, I think we think of, I, I don't know, what do you imagine that God was doing on the seventh day when he rested? Is there a heavenly lazy boy with a large screen TV with HGTV on it. And he's going like, oh yeah, though that Fixer Upper show is great. I love that stuff, man. Like, is that what God's doing? No. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I was like, that's not a rhetorical question. Yeah, like, no. That is, not, that is not what the rest of God looked like. If we understand what the rest of God looked like when he when it says when he was finished from all of his labors, he rested, it means that he sat and soaked in the wonder and the and the beauty and the passion of this new creation that he was now intimately connected with, especially with humanity. There was not actually a whole lot of resting in that rest. Certainly not of like certainly not of like God going and taking a Sunday afternoon nap. That's not what we're talking about here. And that's not what the writer's talking about here either, and it's not what he was talking about that was available to the to the folks in the time of Joshua when they come and take the land. It is not, hey, we made it. Now we're gonna kick our feet back and just kinda chill. I had somebody this week explain to me this rest as like more less like being asleep and more like marinating okay you know, like if you ever, if you ever have those recipes for steak you take it off the grill and then what do you let it do you let it rest why do you let it rest because if you cut into it too soon, like the juices haven't actually moved to flavor the entire thing, and it doesn't taste as good, and I'm doing this right before lunch, and I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. But think about that. There is still a rest for you and I. It is that, it is that being in righteousness with God. That soaking in him, moving in him, living in him, having our lives be filled with the flavor of what it means to be God's children, disciples, missionaries, his people. What life actually looks like. How do we find that rest? How do we stay in that rest? How do we stop forgetting who we are? For the word of God is living and active. We have to stop looking at the word as something that happened to some people a long time ago. 
And we have to let it be something that is happening to us right now. Do we allow ourselves to say things like, we are the children of God, in the same way that those people back then were the children of God? We talked about it in class this morning, that in in, in Deuteronomy, um, there's this part in Deuteronomy 6 where it says, you know, someday your kids are going to ask you, what are all these rules for? And you can even hear kind of like that voice, right? I had to do all this stuff. What's that all about? And it's like, and, and, and the idea is like hundreds of years from now, they're going to ask you, what is the point of all this stuff? And you're going to go, whoa, 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 okay, this, this isn't about, you know, do this rule, do that rule, do all that stuff, do all that stuff. No, 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 you need to understand why we do what we do. Because we were slaves in Egypt. Not some people hundreds of years ago. We were slaves in Egypt. And God brought us out. And he did this and he did that. You've you got to bring it out of the past and into the present. And you have to, you have to understand the word of God, not just as what God has done, but what God is doing and what God is going to do. And that's how you understand how to use all of this. At the same time, there's this part where it says the word of God is living and active and it's able to open up the layers of us. And then there's this part that's kind of scary, you know, where it says we're, we're all naked and exposed. Okay, how many of you enjoy that idea? Okay, I have to do a whole lot more CrossFit before I'm going to be excited about that idea, even a little bit. Okay. And, and that idea sounds really, really fearful to us, but at, this, at the same time, it depends on how much we trust the one who is laying us open through his word. I am not comfortable with being exposed in front of just anybody. But what about the one who knit me together, molecule by molecule? What about the one who's walked with me every single faltering step of my life? Do I trust him enough to let myself be open to him again? I don't really, I don't really think that the writer wrote that as like a scary thing to the people. It was to say, look... God already knows who you are. God already knows where you've been. God already has an idea of where you're going. You you are already out there in the open in front of him. Let him do his work. And how do we let him do his work? By taking him in. By listening to him. By listening to his word. By letting it work on us. That, that means that it's more than just, it is more than just us doing it as a practice. You know, have you been in your Bible today for information? Have you been in your Bible today for information? It means that you rest in it, that you soak in it, that you talk about it. That you spend time as, as family and friends working on it together. Do you let the word into your conversations? Do you, do you spend time chatting about it? I could, talk a lot more, I could talk a lot more about that, but I want to just give you an example. And it's a long one, and it's out of Scripture. So I'm not going to comment on it a lot. I'm just going to read it. It's in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9. 
And I just want you to hear, I want you to use your imagination. Because again, when I talk about the word igniting our imagination, I'm not talking about flights of fancy. We've tend to use, we have tend to use this idea of imagination as unrealistic, especially in the light of fact. Okay? But God's word is designed to is designed to reawaken our imagination. Actually, I love the late great Eugene Peterson said, you know what, I don't I don't come to the word anymore to gain any new information. It is completely revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more to add there. You know what I come to the word for? I come to the word to reawaken my imagination. To be able to see the thing that I can't see. To be able to perceive what God is doing and the reality that Jesus is Lord when it doesn't look like that. That's what I come to the word for. I want you to hear the story of another group of people allowing God's word to reawaken them. By the time that the seventh month arrived, the people of Israel were settled in their towns, and all the people gathered as one people in the town square in front of the water gate and asked the scholar Ezra to bring the book of the revelation of Moses that God had commanded for Israel. And so Ezra the priest brought the revelation to the congregation, which was made up of both men and women, everyone that was able to understand. It was the first day of the seventh month, and he read it facing the town square at the water gate from early dawn until noon in the hearing of the men and the women, all who could understand it. Small commentary. Long sermon? Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, keeping going. All of the people listened. They were all ears to the book of the revelation of Moses. Ezra opened the book, and every eye was on him. He was standing on this raised platform, and as he opened the book, everyone stood. And then Ezra praised God, the great God, and all the people responded, Oh, amen, yes, yes, with their hands raised high. And they fell to their knees in the worship of God, their faces to the ground. And it lists a whole lot of people that I won't name But all of these Levites, they came and explained the revelation while the people stood listening and they translated the revelation of God and worked with it and talked about it so that people could understand it. Nehemiah, the governor, along with Ezra, the priest, and the scholar, and the Levites who were teaching the people said to the people, today is a holy day to God, your God. Don't weep. Don't just weep and carry on. And they said this because As the people heard the words of the revelation of God, they were weeping. And Nehemiah continued, go home, prepare a feast, holiday food and drink, share it with those who don't have anything because today is God's holy day. Don't feel bad. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the people went off to feast and they ate and they drank and they included the poor in a great celebration. Now they got it. They understood the reading that had been given to them. Moving over into chapter 9. Then on the 24th day of the month, they start doing this as a regular practice. The people of Israel gathered for a fast. They wore burlap, and they, they smudged their faces with dirt and ashes as signs of repentance. And the Israelites broke off all of their compromising relationships, and they stood up, and they confessed the sins and the iniquities of their parents. While they stood there in that place, they read from the book of the revelation of God, their God, for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of the day, they confessed, and they worshipped their God. 
And then a group of Levites shouted aloud and cried out to God, their God in a loud voice, and said to the people, On your feet, bless God, your God, forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the one, God, you alone. You made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, and all angels, the earth and everything in it, the seas and everything in them. You keep them all alive. Heaven's angels worship you. And as they go on, they tell the story, all the story, right? You made the world. You came to Abraham. You came to Isaac. You came to Jacob. You came to Joseph. When we were in Egypt, you came to us, and you did this, and you did that. And they just tell the whole story again, and everybody starts to remember who they are again. And then at the end of nine, and now our God, O great God, God majestic and terrible, loyal in covenant and love. Don't tread lightly the trouble that's come to us, to our kings and princes, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the time of the kings down to day. You're not to blame for what's come upon us. You did everything right. We did everything wrong. None of us listened. We ignored your commands and we dismissed the warnings that you gave us. And then they turn around and they sign this great covenant at the beginning of 10. They say, we as a community will live differently. What do you hear happening there? What I hear is a word that is living and active among God's people. A word that's not stale, a word that's not powerless, a word that was not a word of information, but a word that changed hearts and lives. We're having our annual general meeting today, if you didn't hear that part earlier this morning. I was talking about it last night and somebody went, "Ah, but it sounds so annual (laughs) and so general I went yeah I guess but at the same time like the reason we do these things is because they are reminders of where we've been and where we are and where we hope God's taking us you know one place I really hope that God would take us I don't want you to take us to places like this. Whereas we come together and we read God's word together and we pray together and we worship together and we let it live in us again. And we soak in it. We rest in it. And we don't just rest in it by ourselves. We stop making reading the Bible an intellectual, individual thing and we start making it a transformational, communal thing again. Like it was for Israel. Like it was for the followers of the church the followers of the way of Jesus. They did not sit there and go, oh, well, that's an interesting piece of information. They went, God is speaking to me. What am I going to do with that? That's what I really hope and pray that he will do with you and me.
That's what I hope that studying the Bible would become for us again. Will you pray with me? Oh God, please let your word be alive in us again. Lord, as the narrative around us becomes ever more confusing and ever more dark in some ways, there are things that want to become our gods. Fear, self-preservation, success, justice on our own terms. I don't know what it is, God, but there are a lot of things. There are a hundred little gods that want to have us burn the incense to them and say, you are Lord. Don't really mean it, but, you know. And God, in that, I pray that your word would come alive to us. Give us fresh vision again, that things are not as they seem, that you are Lord, and that the kingdom of heaven is near. Give us fresh imagination when we can't see what you're up to, give us the courage to let your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and illuminate our imagination again. God, bring fresh transformation to us again. Help us to learn who we are again and to start ordering our lives around you again. Lord, renew this community, please. Renew us as people that are submitted to your Holy Spirit and we learn about what that looks like together and we stop being so fragmented in our own lives by ourselves and we start letting your word work on us together. And Lord, I pray even more that we would live the words of James, Lord, that we would not merely be hearers of the word and deceive ourselves, that we would do it, that we would live it, that we would embody it. Lord, please don't let us be those people that hear your word and go out and forget who we are again like a person that goes out looks at themselves in the mirror, and then walks away and forgets the shape of their face. Lord, help us to be changed. Help your word to be living and active to us again. Amen.